Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new series of our podcast, Judge Me by My Cover. Today, I'm joined with my co-host, Brad Lima, and we are very excited to have a very special guest coming on with us. Something about our series, in particular this episode, it was sponsored by Money 2020 Europe, is going to be held in Amsterdam, June 3rd to 5th. Our new series, Judge Me by My Cover, intends to have thought-provoking conversations with various well-known authors in the fintech space, technology in general, innovation, and longevity. Hope you guys will enjoy it. So Brad, let's start doing a little bit of recap from the last show that we were in, which was in Singapore, Monday 2020 Asia. What are some of the things that you learned from it that was fascinating? Yeah, thanks. Great to join you today. You know, when I think about what we saw in Singapore, I think it's the continued rise of these tremendous financial platforms that started out as just payment companies and have really developed into these super applications. I mean, obviously, Alipay and WeChat, but, you know, you have in other markets in Asia and Southeast Asia, Bcash in Indonesia, you've got Grab going through all of Southeast Asia. And what really started out, I think, as a way for people to send money, to accept payments, and to start storing that value um, really has morphed into these super applications that allow you to, as an entrepreneur, um, grow a business or you know start to sell your services on that same platform. So if anything, what we saw is that these very, very dynamic markets have just exploded with opportunity for individuals and businesses to thrive. And companies from Ant Financial to Grab have really built ways for those tools and applications to be served to millions and millions of people. It's just fascinating. I absolutely agree. That was one of the biggest takeaway, like you mentioned, um, with Grab and then Gojek and all of these companies, they started off in their own local market, right? It's to try to solve a need. And a lot of them is around transportation. How do we help people get around? And eventually they ended up realizing there's a much bigger play that they can do to serve, again, the local market. So if anything, I think Southeast Asia is a very interesting place to be right now. Um, So fast forward to Amsterdam where we're going to be in Europe shortly. Um, what are some of the things that you look forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to hearing from some of the neobanks, right? You, we've seen, you know, Revolut and N26 have grand plans of going into, you know, maybe a dozen or 20 markets in the next year or two. And then, you know, the the sort of troubles and tri- you know, tribulations of what they do uh, see as they, you know, serve more and more millions of people is going to be interesting to watch, uh, especially when it sort of coincides with this ramp up of open banking in both the UK and the Euro market. They've really taught us um, in, in some ways in the rest of the globe how to go forward by opening up data and eventually payments um, so that entrepreneurs can build on top of that. But as we're seeing, you know, having a full banking relationship with the customer beyond just a current account or a payment account or a little bit of credit here and there sometimes is more difficult than it looks. But it's a very, very dynamic market. And uh, I think, you know, again, the rest of the globe really is watching to see what open banking really transcends into uh, within Europe itself. I agree. And I guess this is not the time to see uh, whether whether or not we're going to give um, 
a score for how well open banking has fared for the last year, or is that still up for debates? Well, you know, if anything, it's 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 like a Trojan horse. I always look at it, you know, as this opening up of competition in order to take a market like the UK, where it's maybe six or eight banks that have been there for hundreds of years and open more applications to the market so that you can have a small bank quickly, you know, get three or four or five million customers and provide a value that wasn't there before. Because, you know, again, when we think about, you know, something like global financial inclusion, we think about unbanked or underbanked, but really there's no market or no segment that can't be better served by financial institutions. And this is why we're seeing an opening up of that competition and all of these tremendous applications that are starting to have more and more users gravitate to them because they help you, you know, better spend and better save and better invest. And there's no area that's not being tapped into. And I think open banking simply accelerates that process. And I'm most excited about what they can potentially do to improve consumers' financial well-being. And I think we see that in the U.S. as well. You know, a lot of the banks, they're trying to, um, to see what they can do to help people save better, to help people make better financial decisions aside from just, you know, being a deposit gatherer. So definitely a lot of different trends that um, we can watch out for. Yeah, I think it'll be really exciting to be um, looking at the difference between the European market and, say, Singapore, China, and the U.S. Uh, There's so many things that are sort of triangulating together, whether it be open banking, whether, you know, sort of the changes in the regulatory environment. It seems in some ways that we learn from each other and the entire industry is simply getting better and better. Today, we're delighted to have our good friend, Chris Skinner, join us. And for anyone who is in banking and technology, Chris doesn't need any introduction. He writes a daily blog, which I urge you guys to follow. He also speaks at many, many conferences around the world and is the author of 14 books with the latest one called Digital Human. Thank you, Chris, for joining us today. Thank you, Thea. And Digital Human is the best one, obviously. (laughs) All right. So let's start um, talking about one of our favorite subjects, um, the bundling and bundling. With uh, fintechs looking for their second act, many more are expanding beyond what they originally offering to be more bank-like, so to speak. Um, what do you think of this trend? Do you think this is something that's going to continue? Well, we talked a lot about um, the unbundling of the bank when the fintech explosion hit the streets in the early part of this decade. And now at the end of this decade, we talk a lot about the rebundling of fintech by the banking community. And there are, the reason why that's come around is that in traditional financial services, the large banks offer such a wide range of services and have so many customers and so much capital that it makes absolute sense for a fintech that's trying to remove friction from old bank processes to work with them rather than work against them. And equally, it makes sense for the bank to do that because the bank's got so many things that they have to deal with and a lot of it they deal with very badly that if they can find a little partner that can help them with be better with their customers and deliver better services to their customers, then they absolutely should collaborate. And so the collaborative model of um, fintech 
working with traditional banks is very much in vogue right now. I think that will change a lot in the next decade, but we'll come on to that as we talk through the rest of the conversation. So just kind of going along that uh, same theme, though, one of the things that we saw an awful lot in conversation in Money 2020 in Asia, um, for example, uh, Denise Gibbon from Standard Charter talked about the new digital bank that they're building and launching in the UK. They're going to be using a new core banking engine. All of the technology is going to be hosted on the cloud. A lot of new partnerships are going to be involved with that. I mean, talk a little bit about you know how global banks are building challenger banks that are completely digital, and and why do you think that's going to be sort of critical to banks' future success? Well, I think that's a big challenge right now for traditional banks, and we've talked about this a lot for many years, and specifically over the last ten years, which is they have so much legacy, and it's not legacy systems. It's more than that. It's legacy vendors, legacy employees, legacy structures, legacy customers, legacy management, legacy leadership. You know, there's so much that's been built up over the last half a century that they have to break away and rebuild. And they can do that either by working with the collaborative ecosystem and rebuilding the bank into a digital bank, or they can just duck out of the tough decision to rebuild the bank and say, you know what, we'll, we'll just launch a brand new bank. And the only reason why I think it makes sense to, board, to launch a brand new bank, a brand new digital bank specifically, is um, to appeal to a completely different audience to the traditional customers of the old bank. So by way of example, um, when you see so many challenger banks around Europe and the rest of the world, uh, you know, the Bunks and the N26s and the Monzos of this world, then European banks are saying, you know what, we can't compete with them, but we'll launch a brand new digital bank, and that can engage with the digital customer, which is a, a new customer demographic that we don't appeal to as a traditional bank. In other words, it's not cannibalizing the old bank, it's appealing to a brand new customer segment, which um, is a digital customer segment. Uh, the problem with that is that you know the, the old bank's still there, <laughs> and what are you going to do with it? And... Um, so I'm working on a project right now where I've been studying five of the biggest banks in the world that I think are doing digital well, uh, and to be honest, of a size that's substantial, there's not that many that are doing digital well. I can probably count them on two hands and maybe a couple of toes. Um, and the five that I've engaged, it's really interesting because they really are fundamentally from the foundations and the grassroots of the bank, changing the bank structure, culture, organization, and thinking, and not just adding digital as a bit of extra to the old bank, but really starting with digital as the whole new way of thinking about the new bank. Do you think that it is a neobank or a challenger bank focused on one segment at a time? Because we had Andy McGuire from HSBC on stage, and they're building a SME-focused digital bank. And will it be a sort of series of segmented approaches for both consumer and business? Or do you see, you know, these five banks that you kind of see doing digital well as building one application that expands to the rest of their base? Well, there's a number of dimensions here. So segmentation to me is a bit like channel. It's a last century way of thinking. Um, so channel is purely used like digital channel or mobile channel because our old way of thinking is that when we got something new like the internet, we added it on as a channel to our old system, 
which is based around the branch. Um, and the same with segmentation. You know, we, we, we cannot segment customers anymore into saying, well, you're digital and you're not, and you're kind of a little bit digital and you're kind of a lot digital, but you're really old, so we don't really want to deal with you at all. Whatever. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. And what's happening is that customers are morphing towards the lifestyle financial services and apps and systems that suit them best. And that may be an amalgam of a marketplace, which someone curates and brings to them, which is a strategy of challenger banks like Starling in the UK. Uh, or it could be actually a traditional bank uh, bringing you along into their new world by bringing those services to you which is what um, companies like DBS are doing in Singapore with the ecosystem strategy. Or it could be that you just really don't care, and so you'll just stay with whoever the bank is that you've got because you really don't want to deal with anyone except to have your money safe and secure in a trusted account, which means that you're the 90% of people who will stay with your old bank and you don't care anyway. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. That segues really well to something that we're curious about, because you know, for for anyone who has followed you along, noticed that talk a lot about the Alibaba, the the Tencent Chinese ecosystem model, right? And so, in a recent blog on open banking, you talked about banks need to be curators of open marketplaces that remove friction from the bank processes, rather than developers of end-to-end services for customers that are aimed to controlling and retaining their relationship in exclusion to all the others. So based on what you just talked about for the last five, 10 minutes, who are some of the players that you think will be best able to realize that vision? Will that, will that be someone from you know, Bank in the East or uh, will that be a mix of the East and the West? Well, I'm glad you've been reading the financer.com, Theo. Just throw that into uh, my <laughs> website domain. Um, and I mean, I blog about a lot of things and I kind of get frustrated because the subject we're discussing is immense. And I think a lot of people simplify it. And a lot of us just think it's all, it's payments or it's, it's my retail bank deposit account. And we forget, you know, actually financial services is multi-layered, multifaceted, global, complex, lots of regulations, lots of history lots of players and lots of products and services from investment banking, asset management, fund management, wealth management, private banking, insurance, life insurance, general insurance. You know, the layers are immense and the players are immense. And, you know, we simplify this far too much to normally just talking about payments, transaction banking and retail, which is not right. And then when you get into that discussion around that complexity and those layers, there's lots of different strategies amongst lots of different companies about how they can strategically work digitally in this space. Uh, Some are trying to ignore digital or add digital as something that they think is a project and a function. Uh, And 
they will succeed in the short term doing that, but in the long term they will fail because uh, digital is actually a transformational change to the way in which financial services engages in business. It's moving fundamentally away from what was a traditional industrial revolution business model, which is around the physical distribution of paper in a network of buildings and humans, to our internet era where we're dealing with the digital distribution of data through software and servers. So if you do not fundamentally rebuild the business model of the traditional financial institution, whether it's niche, narrow, or broad and long, then you will fail. And so what I try to do in the new book is say, who are the guys who I think are doing the big play well? And I picked on a number of companies like JP Morgan Chase, BBVA, DBS, uh, ING, and a few others. And um, I've been lucky enough to meet with them now and interview them. And I'm not trying to find out specifically what they're doing. Instead, I'm trying to get a broad understanding of what lessons and experiences they've had that they can share with everyone else to say, so this is how you do digital transformation. And so far, I have about 25 lessons. Uh, It grows every day, Um, or rather, it grows every time I meet with these banks. Um, But it generally is under the broad brushes, um, work out uh, what other people are doing with digital, work out what we should do with digital, do it, and then do it better. Uh, it's really simple you know, stuff when you boil it down to that level, but it's really complex stuff when you think about changing a institution with you know, $100 billion of assets and 5 million, 20 million, 100 million customers. Yeah. And when we talk about China, it gets into a completely different discussion. So you know, we talk about fintech, and I, I now am quite clear that fintech is doing traditional financial services cheaper, faster, and better with technology. And that's what a lot of the Silicon Valley and the London and the European fintech community is being very good at in terms of trying to remove friction from traditional financial services, processes, and products. Whereas in China, and this is what came out of the Alibaba case for the digital human, um, they're talking tech fin. And tech fin says, you know what? We don't even imagine what finance is. We, you know, we don't come from that space. We come from technology. So... What can we do with technology that's completely different? And the products and services they invent are radically different. So you end up with um, real-time nano loans. You know, I, I want a loan for the next five minutes for $100. There you go. You can have that. You know, why the hell do you have annuitized products? Because we used to deal with physical distribution through buildings and humans. Now in digital distribution with software and servers, you can have an insurance for the next hour if you want. There's no such thing as an annual product. And the thing that's really interesting, I think, about this model is that it's not just in the case of, you know, Alipay and WeChat financial services. It's it's how do you get your cleaning and how do you get, you know, um, your tickets and, and these types of things. But is it is it something that's going to leave some people behind? So let's talk about, you know, the less cash versus cashless. Um, Philadelphia became the first U.S. city to ban cashless stores. Citing that stores don't accept cash, they discriminate against people without bank accounts or credit cards or simply people that want to pay by cash. So when you look at you know the state of New Jersey and cities like New York and here where I am in San Francisco, Chicago, Washington, they're considering these sort of types of measures to ensure that people could still pay by cash. Um, if everything's moving to digital, is this something that's just you know something that matters in the U.S. or 
Where, where does cash come in? I mean, the cash discussion is an interesting one. In many ways, Europe and America, I describe as legacy infrastructure economies. And the reason why I say that is that a lot of what we implemented for commerce dates to we um, to before when Mark Zuckerberg was conceived. You know, it's going back to the 1970s. Um, and we're trying to add new infrastructure to that old infrastructure. And it's a clash. It doesn't really work. It doesn't. It's not real time. It's very challenging. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., um, the idea of cash just to me is quite a way off because knowing my American colleagues, there's an awful lot of um, card and check based infrastructure that people are very comfortable with. And you have to create some motivation and incentive to move away from things that people are comfortable with. And the same in Europe, and um, particularly, for example, as the UK uh, customer, um, I'm very used to dealing with everything uh, with card. And I don't, therefore, want to move away from my card habit. Uh, in fact, it's interesting that I now live um, between UK and Poland. And Poland, um, I don't need cash at all. I can do everything with a card. And you pay, the reason why I normally have cash is for taxi drivers and for paying people for odd jobs. And that's still the case. I don't need to do that in Poland. But, you know, the odd job guy will take a contactless payment on a contactless terminal. Um, and then you go to, to China and India and economies that had no infrastructure um, 20, 30 years ago. So their infrastructure is brand new. And they're leapfrogging to cashlessness way before Europe and America. You know, it's estimated that most Chinese large cities will be cashless, um, well, certainly by the end of this decade, if they're not already. Um, and in India, uh, thanks to demonetization, uh, people are moving very quickly to QR code payments and mobile wallets. Uh, and in fact, people are already saying that's passe because we can go to face recognition and have payments by facial ID. Um, so you, you just need to smile to pay. You don't need to even actually think about paying anymore. I think that's the fundamental point, which is um, massive change. And we know that we've seen this already in the digital revolution. Some people are keeping up, some are left behind. Some institutions are keeping up, some are left behind. The left behinds might deal with the left behind users. And the people keeping up might deal with the keeping up users. And there's a few that are very visionary that will deal with the visionary users. And it's really defining your strategy, your audience, your path forward, and working out how you want to engage, who you want to engage, and what you want to engage with. And I think the fu those fundamental questions around strategy and structure of companies is one that is not yet really explored well enough. Too many companies are ducking the issue and actually avoiding the hard questions around what do we want to become when we grow up in the digital world. I think that there's the strategy, but that's also, you know, from a policy perspective, right? That that whole Philadelphia case, you know, that we've been talking about lately, the, the argument against that is because so has quite a population that are in poverty and people that don't have access to digital 
right? And so their argument is, if I can't even go to the store and get food, if you move everything to digital, then what are we going to do with the people that are being left behind? So there's the fundamental digital divide question from an infrastructure perspective that I think we need to improve upon um, before we leapfrog, at least in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I mean those are the tough discussions to, to be had. Uh, uh, there are people who are outside the digital engagement. They sit in the digital divide, and they're still very analog. Um, and we see that not just in Philadelphia or in the USA. You know, I've got a video of a guy in China in a Beijing store trying to pay with cash, and he's told he can't. And he's in tears. I mean, he's distraught because he wants to eat, and he can't actually pay for his food. Um, so China's also bringing in laws to say if people present cash, it's legal tender. You have to accept it. You can't say no. And I think that's where we get into a debate around, you know, where are we taking this world uh, in digital and physical engagement? You know, we have to recognize that the foundations of the world we live in today were built in the industrial era in a physical distribution structure, but we're replacing that with this digital. When you look at Facebook with Cambridge Analytica, or when you look at some of the issues recently cited with Instagram with um, teenagers self-harming, you realize that the digital world is actually seriously under-regulated. And it goes back to that point I was making earlier, which is when you live with financial services, you're dealing with a very highly regulated industry, and you're dealing with that industry in a highly regulated way, primarily because money is a fundamental human necessity. And if you don't have it, then it creates um, depression and suicide and bad vibes. You know, so you've got to have a healthy ecosystem to enable people to live with money. And that's exactly to this point around cashlessness and cash uh, and being cashless, that if you don't enable people to live happy lives with money, then governments get that wrong. They've got to change things. So if you have a crystal ball, Chris, um, which I think you do, what will banking look like 10 to 15 years from now? Um, a lot of the banks are going to be radically different in structure and organization and management. Uh, right now, I think most banks are still quite traditional in their structure, organization, and management. They deal with um, pushing products through channels to customers with a focus for, on incentives related to sales of product uh, and a leadership team that understands uh, compliance, regulation, risk, and money intimately, but they're not that uh, au fait with the terminology of technology. Um, in 10 to 15 years, the leadership team will be incredibly intimate with technology. Um, not necessarily all of them, but most of them. Uh, and they won't focus on product, uh, but they'll focus on customer and customer journey and customer experience. And they will be really trying to leverage um, digital engagement through platforms with those customers rather than uh, pushing products through channels. And one of the big learnings I've had through talking to the banks about doing digital well is that um, they really have changed their leadership approach from one where 100% or 90% or 80% of the people on the leadership team are banking people to trying to get a balance of 50-50. Um, and my favorite example is BBVA, who are part of my project for the new book. Uh, and if you look at the, the operational leadership team of BBVA, 
Um, they have a head of data, a head of engineering, a head of customer experience, a CIO as part of the operational leadership team, along with a CEO who was being grounded in technology and a chairman who qualified as an engineer from MIT and is grounded in technology. So half of their operational leadership team are digital people. And I think that's what you have to have to be a digital bank because half of the words, the phrase, digital bank, is digital. And if you only have banking people, where's the digital people to give you the balance? You've got to have a balance. And 10, 15 years from now, I think most banks will be run by um, technologists and financial experts in balance and harmony, um, along with an ecosystem of partners that keep that balance and harmony. Yeah, I think I read something similar about JPM as well, that they're trying to expand um, their recruitment processes to hire more people that can help them with AI and, and all of that technology for banking. So more to come, exciting times, definitely. Um, and with that being said, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. Um, always a delight to talk to you. And uh, for our listeners who would like to hear more about today's topic, what we just talked about, join us at the upcoming Monday 2020 Europe that will be held in Amsterdam, June 3rd and 5th. Thank you, Chris.